You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Rua Space Podcast, where we look to make space for the Holy Spirit. I'm Phil, and today I am joined by Myron Penner, the author of the book, The End of Apologetics. Now, I'm really excited about this conversation because it's one that spoke to me personally. His book was really meaningful for my own story, my own walk of faith. When I was in college, I was actually going into apologetics through physics, apologetics being this idea of the defense of the faith. Today, especially through rational, scientific arguments where we hope to prove that the faith is something you should or even must believe in. But throughout my own journey, I've come to see it very differently. And Myron's book helped put some really helpful language around that. And I believe that no matter where you are in your journey, however you feel about apologetics, this conversation can bless you. It can encourage you. So Myron first takes us through his own story of coming to write this book. And I encourage you, if you need a dictionary nearby, that could be helpful because we do talk about some philosophical concepts. But ultimately, he gets very practical in talking about the fact that we are invited to be in the truth, not just knowing it as something objective or intellectual as if it was out there somewhere, but to be a witness, to testify to the difference Christ has made in our own life. Edification, this full life we're invited to ultimately being central. That we don't need to be a genius who has all of the answers or can answer everyone's questions. And this doesn't mean that we're not intellectual or that our faith isn't reasonable, but it is to say that maybe rather than having all the answers, we're invited to listen. Invited to get to know our own story, the difference Christ has made, and then come to understand other people's stories. So we dive into all of that and more. I was really grateful for Myron coming on. He was a wonderful guest, and I believe that you will be blessed, challenged, and encouraged by our conversation. So brothers and sisters, without further ado, here is my discussion on the end of apologetics with Myron Penner. Well, Myron, thank you so much for coming on the Rua Space podcast. It's an honor. Yeah, well, it's great to be here. So do I call you Myron? Is that, that good for Absolutely. you? Absolutely. All right. I feel a little bit like you should be like Lord Myron <laughs> Bradley Penner or Sir, you know? Wow. That Could you have a chat with my wife? <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of these like Maybe epic names. <laughs> Maybe my kids. <laughs> I think it's a pretty epic name, so it works. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> So when I was going to my undergraduate university, or as a college at the time, I was in physics and apologetics was central to sort of my identity and how I was thinking about the world. Sure. Yeah. And, and as I sort of went into ministry and grew, I, I kind of, I really kind of went away from it. And there was a dis-ease both uh, internally and, and kind of in my mind about it. But your book then jumped out to me and really put language to oh, sort good. of what I was experiencing. And uh, so I'm hoping maybe we can just kick this off by sharing a little bit of your journey, how you got to write the end of apologetics and just a little bit in general, what it's about. Let us know the issue and kind of the direction you're taking it. Yeah, sure. Um, I had a similar story to yours. However, I was not 
uh, into physics. Uh, math was not a strong suit, and I didn't enjoy the physical sciences. I enjoyed physical exercise. Uh, I, I often say in high school, uh, I majored in phys ed and dating. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I actually went to university to be a phys ed teacher, believe it or not. But I had these deep existential questions uh, about my faith and about how I made sense of the world. Um, and I had gone to Bible college before I went to university. And at Bible college, I had encountered, well, for the very first time, a philosophy course, and in conjunction with that, an apologetics course. And of course, in that context, those are often uh, brought together uh, and virtually indistinguishable from each other. And I had been a straight C student. I majored in eligibility pretty much. Uh, and I was on the hockey team and on the volleyball team. And I had really believed, I grew up in a Christian community and I had really believed that I, A, was not very smart, B, that I couldn't really be a good Christian person. Not that it was false, but I just really wasn't a very good Christian person. And, and, and see that everybody else was getting something that I wasn't getting. Um, that's kind of how it felt to me because I would go into like, I took an inductive Bible study method, right? Uh, where I discovered that it wasn't very inductive at all because there was a whole set of right answers you're supposed to somehow discover. <laughs> uh, and, and I just had all of these questions that I didn't get and didn't understand that I needed before I could actually start to answer the questions that I was supposed to be answering about the text and about exegesis and stuff like that. And I got into these classes and I, I literally was hovering at the 2.0 in the Bible college. It was just whatever it took for me to get eligibility to travel, right? Because if you were below 2.0, you couldn't travel on a team. So I just, mm. I, zero GPA. I mean, it was just like, it was not an emphasis in my life whatsoever, except to maintain eligibility. And, um, I, so, so I was not one of the smart kids. I wasn't one of the good kids. I wasn't one of the Bible college, you know, poster boys. And in this class, I discovered that there was a whole world of thought that was asking the questions that I really cared about. And it literally transformed my academic life. I went up to that. I remember that semester, my GPA was 3.8. Um, but so all of that to say, I discovered these questions and that I actually like was smarter, quote unquote, than the smart, quote unquote, kids. Hmm. Um, the, the, the ones that were, you know, the serious, you know, Christian scholar students, right? And so apologetics just became this passion of mine. Um, I know this is a long... <laughs> no, this is good. We're, we're getting there. Um, yeah. And right towards the end of that, because it was a very brief time, uh, I read a book by uh, a very well-known in Kierkegaard scholars, Kierkegaardian scholar, philosopher, who is an evangelical named C. Stephen Evans. He wrote a book called Existentialism, The Philosophy of Despair, and the Quest for Hope. And in that book, he talks about his own personal angst. He talks about Dostoevsky, Camus, Nietzsche, Sartre, and Kierkegaard. Um, and how Kierkegaard kind of put it together for him in this existential arena uh, for to answer his questions from a Christian standpoint. And, you know, I had been 
fed a steady diet of A, Norm Geisler. He was the textbook for everything, for philosophy, for apologetics, etc. And and um, Francis Schaeffer. And I remember I would read their discussions of Kierkegaard, and I'd be thinking to myself as I was reading it, wow, yeah, ooh, yeah, I really resonate. And then they get to the end, it's like, oh, but it's completely wrong for these reasons, right? It's so irrational. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I see that. Well, but he, here I'd encountered this book that really, like, put me, uh, put everything at a different angle. It, it, it had a completely different take. And I was suddenly starting to get what I thought existentialism might be. That was still a big question for me, but there was something deeply resonating. Uh, so when I went to university to be a phys ed teacher, uh, my first semester I saw that there was an elective course called Existentialism and Phenomenology. And I was like, hey, that sounds like I could answer some of those questions. And uh, I went into that course and um, I, I had to get the prerequisite waived because I hadn't taken philosophy there and they wouldn't accept anything from the Bible college. But uh, I read uh, an abridged version of Kierkegaard's Either Or and a whole bunch of other stuff, obviously. Uh, and there was a key moment where our our my professor, who was a Hegelian and, and an atheist or something like an atheist, um, uh, had given this what I considered to be a brilliant lecture on Kierkegaard's transition to faith, uh, which is often we call the leap of faith, which is what, of course, Francis Schaeffer and Geisler and all that call it. Um, and I was just like blown away because it was like parsing out my world for me. And I went after him afterwards. His name was Dr. Preuss and had all these questions. And he and I had a, a real friendly kind of banter going on. He knew my background and that I was a, a Christian theist. And and so we, we had a really good relationship. And, and so we were talking and uh, he answered my questions. And I just looked at him and I said, Dr. Preuss, like, why aren't you a Christian? Because he had just explained to me how what it means to have faith and that it, it made not sense in the, in the sort of well, I've, I've argued into this position but it, there was intellectual space for this to be a legitimate thing and he just looked at me and he said like he, he he kind of stopped cold and he said i guess i refuse i just refuse to to accept it hmm. and i remember thinking right then is like wow this kierkegaard guy has something because he has brought this intellectual giant to the point, because in my mind he was, and he was a very good philosopher, but I maybe see things a little differently. Yeah. <laughs> but, but he had brought this, this real massive intellect in my mind uh, to the point where he just said, I just refuse it. Like, I don't have any good arguments for it. I don't care about, you know, trying to defeat it. I can't defeat it. I just am saying in these categories that Kierkegaard has presented to me, I just... Uh, I, well, it, in Kierkegaardian categories, you say he just has offense. Like he takes offense at the gospel. Like I just refuse it. Uh, and so from then on, everything, I, I ended up taking enough classes for it to become an undeclared major in philosophy. And I then, of course, graduated that way with a declared double major in philosophy and phys ed. Uh, maybe the only one in the history of academia to do that. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so in that whole space, of course, I encountered Kierkegaard's vehement, opposition to op, uh, apologetics and Anticlimachus, who is his pseudonym who writes uh, the sickness unto death has that quote that's in the beginning you know whoever invented 
uh, apologetics with a Judas number two, whose betrayal instead of with a kiss is with stupidity. And yeah, that stood out to me, man. Yeah. And that like smacked me between the eyes. Yeah. I had taken, and, and this is sort of a, a Steve Evans, the C. Steve Evans guy. His take on Kierkegaard is a little different than what mine is now. Um, and he sees him very uh, consonant with, with Alvin Plantinga's reformed epistemology. And Plantinga at this time, because I'm old enough for this to be true, was just sort of working out the reformed epistemology thing. He had just published, you know, uh, Reason and Belief in God. And my philosophy religion professor, who was a, a Catholic theist, um, was, was sort of giving us this in, in religious epistemology as an alternative to some of the other stuff that was happening. And I had, before ever reading Steve Evans, had had connected Kier what Kierkegaard was talking about with what Plantinga is doing. Um, and so when he said this, I was really, I, I couldn't understand it. And it took me years to try to figure that out. And in, in a sense, the book is me reconciling with that whole history I just told you uh, and trying to say how it is that uh, reason is important. As Kierkegaard says, the one who believes uh, does not believe what is nonsense because he has and uses his understanding and cannot believe what is nonsense. Right. Uh, and so it's my attempt to try to say, okay, well, what does this mean? What does this look like? On top of that, there's just a whole bunch of stuff that, which comes out in the book that I just find not just unhelpful, but uh, borderline blasphemous, if not actually blasphemous in terms of how it actually works out in practical context with real people. And also very, very harmful, like, like hurtful, like spiritually destructive to people. And at the bottom uh, that this cannot be the tonic or the medicine for our spiritual condition. Like it cannot produce in us the life of Christ, for instance. Uh, I would say the degree to which it functions in that capacity is the degree to which we counteract the deeper impulses and just sort of skim on the surface of apologetics. But the more deeply we immerse in that paradigm, uh, the more detrimental it is to us spiritually and takes us away from the life of Christ. Yeah, so let's let's dive into that then a little bit so that people sort of get a sense of um, where we are in the landscape of apologetics. So uh, kind of the apologetics you're talking about is the idea that we can use, and I know in your book you call it ounce, right? The idea that yeah. rational, that the truth must be objective, meaning something that we can sort of test and see outside of ourselves. We can agree on it by testing it, like through the scientific hypothesis. It's not subjective to a person, right? It's it's yeah. kind of out there. Universal, meaning everyone can sort of understand it, and it's neutral. It has no bias. And so people come up with arguments for why someone ought to believe in God, right? That's modern apologetics. We're going to defend the faith by coming up with arguments that nobody could disagree with, and therefore you should believe in Jesus. No, no it, it really isn't you should. It's like you have to. Mm. As pain of moral failure, because you have violated the, the principal ethic of belief, which is to be irrational, right? Like you have to be rational. Right. So, and so for you, why does that not work? So what, and, and I, I'm agreeing with you. So I'm asking that from a perspective right. of agreement. Um, oh, that's but what sort of is the issue then with saying we should try to prove that faith is rational as an evangelical tool? 
Right. Well, the first thing is that it's just not possible. Um, and I, I, I spend no time talking about that in any, uh, not at the surface level. Like I have almost no interest in proving that there are no good arguments for God's existence. Um, and the problem is that I, I, I'm, what, is really that I'm talking about is much deeper. It's about the playing field. Yep. Um, we don't have the type of reason that we assume we must have in order for that to be possible. Uh, so that reason is not what, as you just described it, it's not ounce. It's not objective, universal, and neutral. Um, and so that's something, that's a construct. That's something that we created. Uh, it, it's, like, it's like the concept of witches and facts. They are modern inventions, right? Um, they're things that, that, that we invent. And they can be helpful, uh, these kinds of inventions, but they're only heuristic. They're only the kinds of things that help us unlock understanding, but not that they themselves have to sort of be, you know, taken with a grain of salt, so to speak. So the, the, the problem then that I have with trying to do that is, is, first of all, that I don't think it's possible because I don't think reason actually works the way modern philosophy says it must. And I do in the book describe a lot of reasons why I think that and give us a little story about how it is that this is a really unique thing in human history that we think of human reason this way. Um, and so th there's then a, a theological problem. That's just sort of a quote unquote philosophical problem because right. I just think it exists. But the theological problem is that modernity does this for a reason. Uh, and Nietzsche calls it the death of God. <laughs> <laughs> because they killed God. That's why they did it. Because they had to have something replace that that role that God played in a worldview. Uh, and up until that point, which is a hard point to define in terms of a historical moment, but generally we can say there was the enlightenment and this happened. Uh, but up until that point, um, a, a human being and, and reason wasn't thought of as like the possession of, uh, of, of a human. Like I am reasonable and therefore I will go out and and make a reasonable picture of a world that otherwise is quite difficult to understand and, and, and irrational. Uh, it actually worked the opposite way. Uh, I didn't make the world reasonable by formulating theories that explain it. Rather, I was reasonable when I conformed to the reasons that are already out there in the universe, um, which is a dramatic difference of perspective, right? Um, and so... What happens is when you get rid of God, who is the one who provides this set of overarching reasons that make sense of everything, uh, like the modern people did, well, you have to have something else, and that would be the human being. So suddenly we invest humans with the rational powers that previously was held by at least the cosmos, uh, if not God himself. Uh, and so there is something inherently blasphemous that happens. And for me, the, the biblical place, and I, I, I don't know if you've read the, the Google reviews of me, but I'm, apparently I'm just not very biblical. Um, that's the huh. sort of, that, that, that's the, the, the knock that I get from some of the, the people that, that write against the book. Because I, I quote Kierkegaard more times than I quote scripture, but I'm assuming that I'm absolutely always underlying everything I'm saying is scripture. Yes. But the, if you want to know the place to go in Scripture where this really is 
the, the zero point for how I want to think about this. It's, it's Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians, uh, the last bit of chapter one through into chapter two, where he talks about the wisdom of the cross, which is foolishness to those that perish. Um, and it's a stumbling block and it's, it's an offense. Uh, it's a stumbling block to the people who want to see some great demonstration of power that proves that God is the, the, the right God. Uh, or it's an offense to people who think that they can pull themselves up by their bootstraps in yeah. a reasonable way to God. And Paul says, listen, uh, where is the scholar of this age? Where is the, where is the wise person? Where is the debater? Uh, God has, it has pleased God to give us, those of us who were not wise, the wisdom that, that has never been revealed before. And it comes to us in the, in, in, on the cross, in the person of Jesus Christ. And on that, and this is why I, I describe in the end, my view of reason is apocalyptic. Um, because I'm not going for uh, the different options that I play out there. I'm trying to say what happens is that reason is completely apocalypsed. It's completely caught up in this moment where we encounter Jesus Christ. And the whole world is different. And there is nothing that can reason us to that point. But now it becomes the point which makes sense of everything. So I find it really problematic then on theological grounds to say there is something in us that can ground and make uh, our belief much more secure than that of the cross of Jesus Christ and the announcement of it. Because especially Paul, but I would say the entire New Testament is utterly clear that in the announcement of the gospel, the spirit comes with it and we meet Christ and we can be transformed. Yeah. I can never get away from that announcement. That's got to be the zero point of our epistemology, of our theory of knowledge, of our understanding of reason. Yeah, that, you know, as you were talking, 1 Corinthians 2, 4 stood out to me um, when I was reading your book. You know, Paul saying, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, Absolutely. but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And there seems to be a movement in the church lately, like you said, well, since the Enlightenment, so at least the last few hundred years, toward... Let me show you why the resurrection is true or the fact that the universe was created in this way. You will let, let us use science to show. And, and you're sort of saying that we're then locating truth in something we can come up with, something we can discover using our own minds. You know, like Augustine, there's this, there's this quote from your books where it says that truth for Augustine is not our possession, but God's. It is, in fact, God's person and not ever our words about God. So this, this thing to say... Truth isn't found in our ability, but in who God is and what God has done in our in our sort of experience. And so rather than convincing people with wise and persuasive words, which you go into Kierkegaard and say the issue is uh, between a genius and an, and, a, and an apostle, right? Right. So, so this is, I, yeah. I honestly think this is encouraging for everyone listening because what you're saying is you don't have to be a genius to share Christ. You need to be an apostle. Can you talk about that I for a minute? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that really is in terms of the practical import that that's what it is. I mean, we often I think because we're deeply immersed in what Charles Taylor calls the modern social imaginary, uh, we imagine ourselves and the world and the relationships, social and, and personal in a way that is fundamentally modern. Uh, and because of that, one of the things that we think we have to do that we mentioned earlier is if we're going to believe anything responsibly, we have to be 
the one who has provided for ourselves the, the rational architecture for that belief. So it has to fit. And we have to have by ourselves established that it is reasonable. Uh, and so this, of course, means that we launch apologetics programs. We try to bring our, our, our parishioners and our congregations and our churches up to speed so that they can have the rational architecture that can go to their neighbor. And you can prove to them that they're irrational. And if you do that, of course, now put the burden on them to believe. And, and you're not stupid. And, and the whole point is we have to somehow we have this this sense that you just mentioned that we all have to be geniuses or at least somehow we have to be the, 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 the progeny, the children of geniuses, or, you know, like uh, we have to have someone give us that and mm. then we can believe responsibly and listen, this will just relieve all of your anxiety. And, and that's just to me false. But, and the, the thing that it overlooks is that no one is able to do that. I mean, I hate to be constantly. Uh, I, I actually think science is wonderful and helps us in our world. Oh yeah. Uh, modern science it has incredible predictive uh, uh, power, uh, and it produces penicillin and uh, vaccines and a whole host of other things that really help us in in, in airplanes. Um, the, the problem is that that science doesn't necessarily tell us the deepest truths of the of the universe. And, and the assumption that it does is begging a whole lot of questions, right? Uh, so it's not like the rest of the world, apart from Christians, has a, in our quote unquote secular society, has a really rational mm -hmm. worldview. And the rest of us who have quote unquote faith are really irrational. And once we seed uh, that ground or, or, or make the assumption with the rest of our society that we have to justify ourselves the way they do we're already standing outside of christianity and i'm saying no we're they're choosing and we're choosing so it's not a matter i don't have to go in and say listen i can prove everything and 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 here it is i can just say hey this is how the world makes sense to me uh, I, I, it sounds really simplistic but yeah jesus changed my life um, yeah and I think he can change yours too. And I'm not a, uh, there are some of us who aren't morons. Uh, you know, I'm, but there are some of us who can articulate this and who use their brains and 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 aren't just simpletons. And this isn't simplistic, but it is at the end of the day utterly simple. Yeah. It's sort of that that famous incident with Karl Barth when he's being interviewed at the end of his life and was asked something like, you know. Uh, Professor Bart, what was what, what's the most profound theological truth that you've come up with? And have you heard this before? No. Well, he says Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible uh, tells me. <laughs> yeah. And yet it took him how, like 13 volumes of the dogmatics. He still wasn't done <laughs> to try and say exactly what that means. You know. Uh, so it, it, it's not. It, it's simple, but it's utterly profound at the same time. It's not simplistic. Yeah, that makes me think of the story in the Gospel of John where there's a man who is blind from birth, right? And Jesus heals his vision and the Pharisees drag him in, you know, the religious leaders and they want to know, well, who is he, right? And he's like, yeah. I, I was blind and now I see. And they keep yeah. asking him, well, we're, I was blind and now I see. They pull in his parents, right? And yeah, and finally he goes, why do you keep asking? Is it because you want to be his disciples too? <laughs> yeah, no, it's perfect. It's perfect. One of the yeah. best that's lines great. in the whole Bible. Yeah, yeah, I like that. So, I mean, there's a sense sometimes, you know, where we 
we can go to Thanksgiving dinner, right? Or uh, you can go to your workplace or your university and feel like, well, I'm going to get peppered with questions about why people should believe yeah. what I believe. And I think a fear and an anxiety can set in because we're told, yeah, you need to, you know, you pre always be prepared to have a defense, right? And if I don't know how to logically prove them wrong, that I've done something wrong. And there's almost this invitation to say, your witness and testimony is that you were blind and now you see. And in your book, you call that edification. So can you tell us a little about edification then and sort of what, so if we're going to start stepping into how, how what is an apolo apologetic being this defense of the faith, what then can people do? Why do we have faith and how do we share that? Yeah, I mean, I think the very first moment of that is to have um, not just intellectual honesty, but a, a deep honesty with ourselves and with other people. Uh, and this is where I, I think it might tie in with your readers and, and the kind of project that I, 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 I think Ruach is doing. Uh, because I think it really ties into to, to disciplines, which for me are really rooted in what Kierkegaard will call inwardness, mm -hmm. uh, or this, this attentiveness that one has to the presence of God in their lives, yep. which is, as, uh, is radically decentering of the self. Um, and so like to sort of give a, a concrete example that connects to what you were saying, you know, somebody might, you might be out, uh, for Thanksgiving and, uh, and you know, one of your aunts has got a friend that came over who's a rabid atheist who just can't wait to sink their teeth into a Christian who says that they believe and they want to come at you and you say, Hey, uh, what I'm just saying to you, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fight with you about this. I don't want. I don't want to prove this to you. I, you know, uh, we probably could have that conversation. What's most important to me is that I've been encountered by someone named Jesus who changed my life, and I'm trying to figure out what that means. Absolutely. You, know, you say I'm trying to figure out what that means because I, I don't have it all figured out. Uh, and and I, often you'll find people don't know what to do with that uh, because you, you've changed the playing ground. Like like you you changed the, the field because you're saying I, I'm not here to battle. I'm here to win. And to be winsome mm -hmm. is edification. So edification is, is simply about the building up of the self. Uh, um, it's not about self-realization. It's about having the self built up. And what you find is that loving God by loving your neighbor, uh, which means forgetting your own project, but making your neighbor's project, your project, their edification, you find that it's fundamentally edifying it's fundamentally building up of yourself to build into someone else's life uh and uh that's at the, the core that's just simply what it is uh and so we have to constantly uh this is in our lives in which the spirit can work in which we can be attentive to what the spirit is doing and i call those disciplines um yeah. and so those things are edifying and as uh, our ability to announce the gospel depends upon our ability to have been to to have received the announcement, and the deeper we can live and in that announcement or receive that announcement by opening ourselves up to the the grace that comes to us in in the encounter with Jesus Christ, the the, the greater capacity I have to be a witness to that. Uh, but I would say in terms of just practical, like being fundamentally honest with yourself and with other people is crucial to our witness, like crucial to our witness. Yeah. I love when, when you were, when you were talking, the word that came to mind was incarnational, 
this well, idea of the word became flesh and moved, you know, moved into the neighborhood, right? As um, yeah. I think Eugene Peterson translates uh, the opening chapter of John. But this idea of you were saying our term, by the way, just because of the baggage that it carries with it uh, these days. I, sure. I like what Stan Hauerwas says, where he says, I think Anglicans, because I'm an Anglican, uh, needs to need to stop using the word incarnational, because what they seem to mean by it is that God became one of us and, and lived among us and took a look and said, huh, this isn't so bad. <laughs> <laughs> Let's redefine incarnation right here, right now. You know? um, no, but as you were saying that this edification being tied up in, what does your neighbor care about? Where are their desires? Where Who are they? And... Part of the problem that that I think, not to put words in your mouth, but perhaps that you have and I think I have with this is when we just debate on a rational intellectual level, it's not in any way considering who the person is that we're talking to. It's just who, whoever you are, you should just agree with this. Whereas Jesus comes to people and says, what can I do for you? Who yes. are you? And the reasons that we have for believing are as many as there are people. There aren't like a stock set of good reasons that people have to believe. Here's why you should believe. I mean, there's one good reason, because God has acted for us in Jesus Christ. That's the reason why we should believe it. But to get to that place where we can, you know, we're all in different, uh, we all have different backgrounds intellectually. We have different capacities intellectually. We have different social backgrounds. We have different traumas that have happened to us. There are different hurdles uh, that we have. to, So we just can't say, hey, this is a cookie cutter, one size fits all argument. You should believe. No, no, no. The, the coming to belief, the reasons we have to believe are, are multifarious. Like they're as different as there are people who are, exist. And we need to enter into their lives. You referred to Paul, who says, I resolved to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. And, and he came among them and uh, he ate with them and he lived with them and he he was therefore able to announce the gospel to them in ways that they could receive because he was, to use the word, incarnationally living out the gospel among them. So if someone were, instead of reading an apologetics book that would take, you know, four hours or eight hours to learn the arguments in order to go and convince someone, what might they use those hours for instead? Well, let me first of all say that uh, developing your intellect is never a bad idea, and it is sure. a, a discipline, and it can actually be a spiritual discipline, but maybe it can get toxic if you're just looking at apologetic arguments. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. I mean, because for the people who know me, I mean, I love physics. I mean, evolution, Big Bang Theory, all that all that stuff is central. For me, though, it's it's um, it, it isn't the purpose isn't to necessarily say this right. is why you must believe. I think that's kind of the difference, but... So, so how can people train? I, I guess my question then is, how can people sort of spend their time in a way that that helps them to listen, helps them to say, in this context, this is what the good news listen looks like. How can we, how can we truly minister to people that good news? Then, what does it look like? Well, first of all, you need to develop. One needs to develop one's own relationship with God and Jesus Christ. And one does that through a host of ways. And then you also need to develop your your capacity to understand it, um, what that really means, and pursue those questions. And I firmly believe in the existence of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I honestly believe that the Holy Spirit will guide us uh, through our passions. 
And so in meditation and prayer times, we will be drawn to, I think, certain kinds of questions and certain kind of uh, wonderments, things that we wonder about and to pursue them uh, through various forms of study. So study is important. Being oh, yeah. able to articulate is really important. Um, it's, as you pointed out very helpfully, it really depends on why you're doing what you're doing. And then it also de does depend, that will also connect you to what it is that you'll pursue. Um, but to understand yourself and your relationship with Jesus Christ is the one that is the place that is ground zero for being able to have an authentic witness. Um, and that's a lifetime to develop. So there, there is no, hey, do these five things, and, <laughs> but, and you'll be a good witness to your neighbor. Yeah. Uh, it's how about, because it's gonna involve listening to your neighbor. Yeah. You gotta get to know people. Like, rather than trying to figure out uh, uh, you know, what kind of arguments you could use to convince someone in general, how about you form a friendship with somebody who hates Jesus and figure out what makes them tick and how you can serve them in the ways that they need to be served to be whole people. Spend some time developing relationships with people. Develop your relationship with God and Jesus Christ. And then let that be the thing that drives you into relationship with people who don't have this incredible news in their lives that's transforming them. And figure out why, what, because everyone is searching for something. And how are they searching? And how have they identified what it is that they think they need? They might not be right, but they're definitely searching, right? Um, and they might be engaging a whole host of unhelpful ways that they can bring wholeness and happiness to their lives. And you can't speak to those things if you aren't part of their lives. And so I would say if you've got eight hours, spend it trying to get to know someone and genuinely getting to know them, not... not uh, well, I, I got a bait and switch here. I, I want to know what you really like so I can tell you what I think you really need. You know, not that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds to me one of the one of the things you talked about was not just knowing the truth, but being in the truth. And it absolutely. seems to me that's what you were sort of starting to dive into there is that first and foremost, what we need to do is not just know with our minds, but have an experience of the truth and that it'll yeah. flow from there. Absolutely. Uh, that it becomes... Uh, the word that Kierkegaard uses is appropriation, but it becomes the thing that 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 defines who we are and how how we are. So the the how over the yeah the how is important. <laughs> the medium is the message. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I love that. Well, as we kind of sort of uh, wind down with our time here, I guess I'd, I'd ask you just to share some final thoughts you'd leave people with. As someone who, this was a passion enough of yours to write a book about it. What are you sort of hoping in the end people walk away with and how would you encourage them and challenge them on that journey? Well, that's a good question. Um, uh, first of all, it, it was a bit of therapy for me to finally get that out. And so... It was my personal therapy. I thank all of you for being with me on the journey. <laughs> but no, you do hope. I, what I, I mean, bottom line for me, and you've mentioned it here, and I think I feel like you kind of got the core of the book, which is really edification. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope people are edified. I hope that as they, they, they read this book that they can come to understand their own social, uh, intellectual, personal situation 
in a way that frees them up from the chains that bind us. Uh, the, 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 Paul talks about tearing down arguments uh, and that, that keep us in captivity. Uh, and, and I think there, there are concepts and ideas that can operate like spiritual powers in our lives and they can blind us. Like I can be so committed to a certain concept of freedom that it blinds me to the person who needs most to be free, right? Because I think that they are wrong for these different reasons and I just enslave them more mm -hmm. because I think in order to be free, whatever. We can do the same thing with Jesus. Um, and so I hope that this, this gives people the ability to follow Jesus and be built up in Christ. Uh, that, that's my driving passion. And I hope that as they move forward, uh, maybe I'll, I'll say it this way. Uh, I was recently asked, actually in a job interview uh, about a year ago, um, you know, what would you say is the most important thing for pastors and for people in the pew these days? Uh, and it was know your story. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean just your personal story. I mean, know the story, because we're so lost from the narrative that grounds us in, in Jesus Christ. And and then know how your story is part of that story. Um, and getting to know that story is is virtually inexhaustible. Like, like you can't get to the end of that. Uh, and pursue pursue Christ and and. In the kinds of ways that I, I sense that Ruach is all about, um, and about developing uh, what what Jacques Ellul calls a Christian style of life, uh, mm -hmm. and he he bemoans the fact in his day, which was you know in the '60s, that Christians had lost a style of life, uh, and I think he's utterly correct. And uh, writing projects in the future for me are going to really focus in on that. And so uh, I think we variously talk about things like rule of life uh, and, and incorporating disciplines. And I think for people to really come up with this deep sense that if and to work this out in their lives, that that if if I'm to be a follower of Jesus, that has to inform all of my decisions and and, and how I am in the world. So what does that look like and start to be intentional about uh, about how we are in the world and don't bifurcate. Don't say, well, I'm a Christian, which means I get up in the morning and I spend 15 minutes reading my Bible and in meditation and prayer. And then uh, I go to work and then I, I try to, I try to not be a bad person at work, but then I, I I'm not a Christian again until I, I get to the next morning and finally on Sunday. They, uh, <laughs> the, even the choice of job that I have and the choice of car that I have and how I, you know, what my, my diet is and all like I am a Christian and I'm inhabiting the world with Jesus Christ. Yeah. And that should inform everything that I am. Amen to that. Well if people want to go further with you, where can they uh, where can they find your work where they can where can they connect with you? Oh man, I've been super <laughs> I've been super busy. I, I'm on Twitter. Uh, uh, I think I I think I'm on there as Myron Bradley Penner. Um, and uh, I, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I have uh, I'm a, in a parish. I'm a rector of a parish at, uh, in Edmonton, St. Paul's Anglican.ca, I think is our website. Uh, and if you want to send me a question, uh, you can shoot me an email at myron.penner, M-Y-R-O-N dot P-E-N-N-E-R at gmail.com. 
Uh, and uh, look for stuff because I'm in the process of doing some more writing. Yeah. So there's books. You can search on Amazon and uh, find yes, all of what you're doing. Sorry. <laughs> you can do Amazon. Search there too. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It was an honor to have you on. I, I appreciate the work you did. You beat me to the project I would love to do. So I'm, but I'm really glad it's out there. This is exciting. So thank you. And thanks for your time today. Awesome. Thanks, Phil. I really enjoyed it. All right, friends, Phil here again. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation with Myron Penner. I pray that you are blessed, that you are challenged, that you are encouraged. If you enjoyed this episode, we do these episodes with different people fairly often where we talk about their work, where they come on and share their insights. So I encourage you to go check those out, to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have enjoyed this episode and others, uh, that's a blessing to us. It helps our ministry reach even more people. Definitely go check out Myron Penner's work. Uh, I know he stated at the end that he's got more stuff coming, and so I I believe that that can be edifying to you. So brothers and sisters, as you go forth, may you know your story. May you be edified in your relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Grace and peace be with you.